In this episode of Unbelievably True Crimes, we take a close look at a series of child murders and assaults that go uninvestigated within a hospital in England. No one has an explanation for what's occurring until one of the children is transferred to another hospital and the medical staff notices something strange. This is Unbelievably True Crimes. Attention, ladies and gentlemen of the court. It's time for another case of unbelievably true crimes. Keep in mind that the case details you're about to hear may be completely factual, but it could also be completely fabricated. As your presiding judge, may I remind you that it's your duty to decide for yourself what's real versus what's not up until the very end. Now, let's begin. Welcome back to Unbelievably True Crimes, Episode 3. I'm Ty, a police officer, and with me is... Hello, my name is Adri. My wife, Adri, who is also a uh, 911 dispatcher, and my co-host for Unbelievably True Crimes. So what is Unbelievably True Crimes? Well, Unbelievably True Crimes is a crime podcast in which we discuss crime cases of the past. This podcast is not always true crime, however. Sometimes there are cases that are not true at all. Sometimes the cases are completely fabricated by me, yours truly. Truly mine. <laughs> <laughs> like you, Adri will not have any idea whether or not the crime we discuss each episode is true or false. She is hearing these crimes in real time. She's hearing it all for the first time every single episode just like you. At the end of each episode, you and Adrian will have to consider all the information you learned throughout the episode to decide whether or not the crime was true or false. Unbelievably True Crimes aims to bring you interesting and jaw-dropping stories every Monday. And it's my promise to you that regardless of whether or not the crime is true or false, it will have you wanting more and more. Hang tight until the end of this episode to discover whether or not this crime was true or false. And don't look it up as we go along, because it spoils it all. You'll have a much more enjoyable experience if you just sit back wherever you are, take every piece of information as it is presented to you. Before we dive into the story, I will start out by saying that the following case study has graphic details of child murder. Listener discretion is advised. Now, without further ado... Let us begin. This week we're focusing on a female called Beverly Gale Allett. Throughout the episode I'll be calling her Beverly Allett, or just Beverly. So Beverly Allett was born on October 4th, 1968 in Grantham, England to Richard and Lillian Allett. Grantham is a town in the South Kestevan district of Lincolnshire. I might be saying Kestevan wrong. In 2016, according to Wikipedia, the town population of Grantham was approximately 44,580 people. And a fun fact, Grantham is the birthplace of the United Kingdom's very first female police officer, Edith Smith, in the year 1914. That's kind of neat. It is good neat. for her. Beverly Alec grew up in the small village of Corby Glen, which was approximately nine miles southeast of her birth town of Grantham. Beverly Alec grew up with her two sisters and her brother. 
Also in the household was Beverly's father and mother, Richard and Lillian. Her mother, Lillian, worked as a school janitor, and her father, Richard, worked in a liquor shop. During Beverly's early years, around age 10, she attested to attend Kestevin and Grantham's girls' school, which is an all-girls grammar school with academy status established in 1910. Today, there are approximately 1,000 students ranging from ages 11 to 18, all girls. That's a lot of drama going on. That's a lot of drama. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> what do you mean when they say the school had academy status? So I actually had no idea what it meant either, but when I looked it up, I read that academy status basically means it's an academy school. And what that means is an academy school is a state-funded school, and they're directly funded by the Department of Education, and they don't fall under local authority control. So after failing the test for admission into the all-girls school, Beverly Allett instead enrolled in school at Charles Reed Academy, which is in the village of Corby Glen and also serves the villages between Stamford, Bourne, and Grantham. And in 1999, another fun fact, the school is renamed to Charles Reed High School. According to biography.com, it was stated that during Beverly's upbringing as one of four children, she exhibited some very worrying tendencies. What kind of worrying tendencies? So, I mean, from what I read, she would put bandage wraps and casts over various parts of her body and make claims that she had injuries, but she'd never actually allow anyone to observe these injuries that she was calling injuries. Many adults attributed this to her just seeking the attention of those around her when she was in a group of children. And I guess this was just her way of stealing the attention away from her siblings and other kids in classrooms and such. As Beverly transitioned into her adolescent years, she became overweight. Her pursuit of becoming the center of attention also became more evident and increasingly more obvious to those around her. Sometimes when she was not receiving this much sought-after attention, she'd become extremely aggressive toward her peers and her siblings. As she entered her teenage years, Beverly was spending a very considerable amount of time in and out of hospitals claiming she had various physical and mental ailments. She also made claims that she was suffering from extreme pain within her stomach area, which ultimately culminated in the removal of her perfectly healthy appendix. According to doctors after her surgery, she had to keep being admitted back into the hospital because Beverly would not leave her scar alone from the removal of the appendix. And because of this, the surgical wound was very slow to heal. Why did she keep messing with her scar? So it's, it's never actually referenced from what I read in my research, but I would assume that she kept opening the scar back up. So then she'd have a reason to go back to the hospital to get it checked out. I think it all goes back to the root problem of her being an intention seeker. So in addition to constantly being checked in and discharged from the hospital due to complications brought on by her incessant need to reopen her scar, she also had a history of self-harm. So because of this, she was always in and out of the hospital so much, eventually she had to resort to quote-unquote doctor hopping once medical practitioners became familiar with her attention-seeking behaviors and antics. 
Eventually, at some point in her adolescence, Beverly's behavior was starting to become very typical of someone with Munchausen syndrome. Munchausen syndrome? Yes. And that's the one, isn't that the, what the mom had in that show, The Act? The Act. That the, Hulu show? So I think that's actually Munchausen's by proxy that she has in that show. But that's going to become a topic as well as we progress through this case. So according to WebMD, Munchausen syndrome is a mental illness in which a person repeatedly and deliberately acts as though he or she has a physical or mental illness when he or she is actually not sick or suffering from any pain at all. Eventually, the doctors and adults around Beverly start getting extremely irritated with these consistent antics exhibited by Beverly. And this leads people to no longer giving her the attention she so badly wants and needs and seeks out. Because she is no longer eliciting the attention and reactions that she once was from people, her actions eventually graduate to harming others rather than herself. Well, that's terrifying. Yes. <laughs> so essentially what she's doing now is behaviors similar to that of Munchausen's by proxy. You're absolutely right. So... In her spare time, Beverly, Alet, she'd volunteer her time as a babysitter. And so in my studies, I read that she seemed to be a very caring person, enjoyed roles in which she could help others. And because of her enjoyment in these types of roles, Beverly eventually left school at the age of 16 and signed up for a course for nursing at Grantham College. And at some point during her studies, she meets a guy and they begin dating well, eventually their relationship quickly came to an abrupt ending due to her violent and abusive behavior towards him. So she also made false claims against him, stating that he had raped her and gotten her pregnant. After the relationship ended, her boyfriend described her as being aggressive, deceptive, and manipulative. So eventually she starts training as a nurse at a nursing home, and while working there, she's accused of odd behavior such as smearing human feces, on the walls. Oh my god. Yeah, exactly. So she progressed through her studies. She was absent for many days and she blamed these absences on various illnesses. And despite her poor attendance records throughout her training and coursework on top of her numerous failing grades on her nursing exams, she was hired on a temporary six-month contract at Grantham and Kestevan Hospital in Lincolnshire in early 1991. What was her role there? Just a regular nurse? So she was a nurse in the children's world of that hospital, and she worked in Ward 4. Doesn't it seem a bit strange that they would even take her on as a nurse with her bad grades and her background? I'm sure all of that combined, don't you think? Yeah, I, I thought so as well. But through the reading, I, I read that at this time in early 1991, Grantham and Kestevan Hospital was extremely understaffed. So I think they were just hiring anyone with experience at that point which is unfortunate because those are not the types of people that should be taking care of people and there's just so many things that could go wrong because of doing that and in this case specifically it goes horribly wrong oh good i'm excited this yeah. is gonna get good so when beverly allett starts working at the hospital in 1981 there were only two trained nurses on the day shift and only one trained nurse on duty at night. And because of the limited staffing, it's thought that this is the reason her attention-seeking behavior went on for as long as it did. And we'll deal, detail that as, as we progress. 
On February 21st, 1991, a seven-week-old infant called Liam Taylor was admitted to the Children's World at Grantham Hospital for a possible chest infection. Liam Taylor's parents were very hesitant to leave their son's bedside while he underwent care during his first few hours' stay at the hospital. They audibly voiced their concerns in leaving the child's side, but eventually, Beverly Allett assured them that Liam was in very capable hands and would be well cared for if they left the hospital for the night to get some much-needed rest. Wait, is that poop on your hands? I'm <laughs> <laughs> from smearing. So they eventually left the room that night, and upon returning the next morning, they were informed that Liam had suffered respiratory problems throughout the night, but thankfully he'd recovered and appeared to be doing quite well. And on February 22nd, the next night, Beverly Allett volunteered for extra duty so that she could watch over Liam throughout the night. Liam's parents also decided to stay the night at the hospital. However, they stayed in a separate room from Liam Taylor's. Just before midnight, Liam suffered another respiratory crisis, but it was determined that he'd come out of it satisfactorily. At one point during the night, Beverly was alone with Liam and had reportedly called a code blue, which, which brought in the code team for the hospital. Code blue, is that like he's dying? So, I'm not sure if it's the same universally, but I know in our local hospital, in all the hospitals I've, I've visited, a code blue means that there's a possible death. It's a big emergency. So I'd assume that it means the same thing at Grantham Hospital because she had called this code blue after Liam had stopped breathing. So when the code team arrived, they implemented exhaustive measures to save Liam's life, such as CPR and hooking him up to a ventilator. Unfortunately, despite the efforts put forth by the code team, it was it was not enough to bring Liam back to a stable state. And I imagine it'd be hard. I mean, he's teeny tiny. He's like seven weeks old. Very, very small. You're right. So he, he suffered severe brain damage and was being kept alive through life support measures at that point. So Liam's parents were faced with the heartbreaking decision of whether to take Liam Taylor off of life support or keep him alive, knowing he'd never live out a normal life. So through many tears and much deliberation between both parents, they decided to take him off of life support, where Liam was announced deceased shortly after that decision was made. According to the medical examiner's report, his cause of death was listed as heart failure. Weren't there chest monitors, like heart rate monitors hooked up to Liam? That should have been alerting them at that point. I guess I'm just confused as to why it was Beverly who had called out the code team. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's actually, there are there were heart rate sensors and various other monitors hooked up to him that they didn't sound. From what I read, they, they never did sound, you're right. So the other nurses, I mean, they were confused about this as well as, and, and they voiced their confusion to their supervisors, but nothing ever came of it. I just feel like it's extremely suspicious that Beverly was alone with him at the time the alarms should have been alerting. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I definitely think the hospital should have started some sort of, you know, investigation into the death after finding out. But unfortunately, it was it was overlooked. And now I'm not sure if that's due to laziness or the issue of being short-staffed, but I think when it involves the loss of one's life, especially in a baby, measures should be carried out to the fullest to investigate, you know, an event such as that, especially a suspicious event. So Beverly was never questioned? No. According to Murderpedia.com, no. Beverly was never questioned following Liam's death, which is 
absolutely insane to me because I don't know, but maybe, maybe that's just the police officer in me saying that there's always more to the story in my experience. Less than two weeks later on March 3rd, 1991, Kaylee Desmond was admitted into the Children's World at Grantham's Hospital with a chest infection, which she seemed to be recovering from at the time of her admission. We will come back to that in a couple minutes. Two days after Kaylee Desmond is admitted, a young boy called Timothy Hardwick, an 11-year-old who suffered from cerebral palsy, was admitted after experiencing an epileptic seizure on March 5, 1991. Beverly was the care provider assigned to the boy. During a point in the night, after being left alone with Timothy Hardwick in his room, Beverly Allett once again called the emergency resuscitation team, the code team, and that was because his heart had stopped. And despite the efforts made by the code team and a pediatric specialist, Timothy Hardwick was pronounced dead at the scene. On the medical examiner's report, the cause of Hardwick's death was attributed to his epilepsy despite there being no clearer indication as to how his heart would have stopped beating. So, because this is her second death in her care, within just two weeks, she's questioned now, right? No. Well, I mean, she may have been, but if she was, nothing significant was revealed in the interview, if that interview ever even happened. Two days later, on March 7th, 1991, while lying in the same bed where Liam Taylor had been pronounced dead just two nights prior, Kaylee Desmond unexpectedly goes into cardiac arrest despite medical professionals having a positive outlook on her chest infection that she'd been admitted for. And for a third time in just two weeks, Beverly Allett, being the only one in the room with Kaylee, calls in the emergency resuscitation team. And let me guess, she dies. Actually, no. Surprisingly, despite the trend we've been seeing thus far, the code team was able to revive her. And at that point, Kaylee Desmond is transferred to a different hospital in Nottingham. And it's at this point in Nottingham when physicians begin a thorough examination of Kaylee when they see something strange under her armpit. Oh, goody. What is it? So the physicians observe a very odd puncture hole under her armpit. And they also observe an air bubble near this puncture hole. Someone trying to inject something in her? Well, according to medical professionals, the air bubble is attributed to an accidental injection. So while the medical staff finds this extremely odd due to the fact that there'd been no reason to inject someone under their armpit for a simple chest infection, no investigation is conducted after the initial finding of that hole. Are you serious? So Beverly just gets to continue doing whatever she's doing to all these kids, dropping them dead one by one. Yeah, unfortunately, it, it seems so. On March 20th, 1991, two weeks after the incident with Kaylee Desmond, Paul Crampton is admitted to Children's Ward 4, where Beverly works. He's admitted for bronchitis, and shortly before being scheduled for discharge because of his massive improvement over the course of his hospital stay, Beverly Allett is assigned as his nurse. At one point, Beverly calls in for additional medical staff after quote-unquote finding him in a near comatose state. His blood work is then checked, and the testers find very high levels of insulin in Paul's blood. At that point, he's transferred to the same hospital that Kaylee was sent to in Nottingham. He is transported to the hospital by ambulance, with Beverly riding alongside him in the back of the ambulance. When Paul Crampton arrives at the hospital in Nottingham, once again, 
His blood work is ran, and they also find very high levels of insulin in his blood. Miraculously, after several days, he recovers completely. The next day on March 21st, 1991, five-year-old Bradley Gibson is admitted into Ward 4 of Grantham's Hospital. He's admitted for pneumonia, and later that same night, the emergency resuscitation team is called in after Bradley goes into cardiac arrest. Thankfully, he is resuscitated successfully. And at this point, they test Bradley's blood work, and what do they find in his blood? High levels of insulin, maybe? They find high levels of insulin. So then Beverly continues, quote-unquote, caring for him after the successful resuscitation, and guess what? His heart stops again. So once again, Beverly calls in the code team. They roll in. They revive him for the second time, and he's transferred to another hospital in Nottingham. On the same day that Bradley Gibson was admitted, two-year-old Yik Hung Chan was admitted to Ward 4 of Grantham's hospital for a skull fracture he'd suffered after falling from a window. Beverly is also assigned as his primary nurse, lucky him. While quote-unquote caring for Yik Hung Chan, on two separate occasions, his oxygen levels drop dangerously low. He's eventually transferred to a different hospital where his low oxygen level spikes are attributed to his head injury from the fall. Nearly two weeks later, on April 1st, 1991, two-month-old little Becky Phillips is admitted to Ward 4 of Grantham's Hospital, and she's assigned Nurse Beverly Allett for a bout of gastroenteritis. Prior to being admitted into Ward 4, Becky Phillips and Katie Phillips were being cared for by the hospital staff after their premature births. While under Beverly Allett's care, oddly enough, Becky starts exhibiting signs of hypoglycemia. Sorry, what's hypoglycemia? Essentially what hypoglycemia is, is it's just low blood sugar. So Becky starts exhibiting low blood sugar. Somebody get her a cookie! (laughs) (laughs) So Becky starts exhibiting low blood sugar, hypoglycemia, and after being examined, they find nothing out of the ordinary, and they discharge Becky, who's released into the care of her mother. Later in the night, Becky's mother, Sue Phillips, calls an emergency physician over the phone after Becky began exhibiting convulsions. The physician advised Becky's mother, Sue Phillips, that she probably just has colic. And at that point, the phone call ends and the conversation ends. Becky Phillips dies later that night. Shortly after Becky Phillips' death, Becky's mother admits Becky's twin sister. Keep in mind, they were twin sisters, so they were... They were both being observed for their premature birth at that time. Mm -hmm. So Sue Phillips, Becky, and Katie Phillips' mother admits Katie Phillips into Ward 4 of Grantham's Hospital where she's assigned a primary nurse. The beautiful, brilliant Beverly? Beverly Allett. How'd you guess that? I'm brilliant. You are. And not long after being admitted into Ward 4, Beverly calls for, drumroll, The emergency resuscitation team after Katie quits breathing. So the team gets her revived and all is well again until two days later. While still under the care of Beverly Allett, Katie stops breathing yet again. So they eventually get her resuscitated again, but because of the the prolonged lack of oxygen to the brain this second time around, she suffers permanent brain damage and is then transferred to a different hospital in Nottingham for more extensive care. 
And when she's admitted into this hospital, they do her blood work and find large excessive levels of potassium and insulin in her system. Miraculously, unlike her sister, Katie survives. Sue Phillips, Becky and Katie's mother, then contacts her daughter's nurse, Beverly Allett. Oh my gosh. Does she just let her have it? Just, what did she say? So Sue Phillips asks Beverly Allett to be the godmother of Katie Phillips. Are you kidding me? No, I'm Oh my. I'm not kidding, surprisingly. Oh, continue. So Sue Phillips is so thankful, so thankful to Beverly for saving her daughter Katie's life on account of calling the code team so quickly and acting so responsibly. After being asked if she'd be willing to be Katie's godmother, Beverly graciously accepts the offer. Beverly is then highly regarded by Sue Phillips as an angel. This is cringing. Oh, I cannot stand this. So over the course of the next month, four children would eventually fall victim to Beverly's malicious attacks. On April 22, 1991, 15-month-old Claire Peck was admitted into Ward 4 of Grantham's Hospital after suffering from a very serious asthma attack that required her to be placed on a ventilator as a result. Shortly after being stabilized, she was assigned nurse Beverly Allett. Shortly into being quote-unquote cared for by Beverly Allett, Claire Peck went into an unexpected cardiac arrest and had to be resuscitated by none other than the code team. She was successfully revived and then stabilized by the team and once again left alone in the care of Beverly Allett. Shortly thereafter, Claire has another heart attack, but this time isn't so lucky. She is pronounced dead at the scene. When an autopsy of Claire Peck's body is conducted, traces of linocaine are found. And what is that? Linocaine? Mm-hmm. So linocaine is often used for cardiac arrest patients. However, it's never, ever, ever administered to infants and very small children. Now, despite the traces of linocaine being found in Claire Peck's system, Claire's death is ruled as resulting from natural causes, surprisingly. Now, even though it's ruled as natural causes, an inquiry is initiated by a consultant at the hospital, Dr. Nelson Porter, who was alarmed after noticing a high number of cardiac arrest events in children in Ward 4 across the prior two months. So when I, f- when I first started researching this, I, I thought, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't they have conducted an investigation a long time ago? I mean, you look at all the cases prior to this, and it just seems strange to me that no one had raised suspicion throughout all these cardiac arrest events. But eventually I read that they had started an investigation earlier after they attributed an airborne virus, but that was later ruled out after the investigation ended. And after finding high levels of potassium in Claire's blood, in addition to the linocaine, police were then called to investigate by the hospital. Police Superintendent Stuart Clifton was assigned to the case, and after he discovered that most of the incidents across the last two months were the result of high levels of insulin, he suspected foul play. Interviews revealed that at one point Beverly Allett reported the key to the insulin refrigerator as missing. During the course of the investigation, Superintendent Stuart Clifton calls for interviews of all the victims and all the parents of the victims. All records are then collected as well. The investigation found a common denominator in the incidents after daily nursing logs 
are found missing, which corresponded with the time period when Paul Crampton had been in the ward. 25 separate suspicious episodes with 13 victims were then identified. Of those 13 victims, four died. Beverly Allett was present for all 25 episodes. This is so exciting. I am so happy that someone's finally putting pieces together and noticing all these kids dropping like flies around her. I agree. It's, yeah, it's about time. Someone should have noticed a very long time ago. And it's kind of ridiculous in my mind that it took this long. So during the interview and interrogation process of Beverly Allett, Beverly Allett was said to have remained extremely calm and collected the entire time. She denied any involvement in the victim's death and suspicious medical episodes. She stated that her only role with these children was caring for them. During a search warrant executed at Beverly's residence, among the evidence seized was parts of the missing nursing logs referenced earlier. Background checks conducted by the police and psychiatric professionals indicated a very serious personality disorder. Munchausen's by proxy, perhaps? Beverly exhibited symptoms of Munchausen syndrome as well as Munchausen syndrome by proxy. On July 26, 1991, less than half a year after her first victim, Liam Taylor, had died, police felt as though they had sufficient evidence to charge Beverly Allett with murder. However, she was not formally charged with murder until November of 1991. Over the course of 59 days, Beverly Allett had attacked 13 children in Ward 4. Four of those 13 were fatal. At this time, she was charged with four counts of murder, 11 counts of attempted murder, and 11 counts of grievous bodily harm. While awaiting trial in prison, despite being interviewed numerous times by healthcare professionals and the police, Beverly never confessed to being involved in the crimes. During her time in prison, she also lost weight extremely quickly and developed anorexia nervosa, which was further evidence of her severe psychological problems. By the time her trial began, she had lost 70 pounds. Her trial began on February 15, 1993, after being delayed several times due to her illnesses and rapid weight loss. The trial was held at Nottingham Crown Court. During the trial, the prosecutors detailed all the suspicious episodes involving the children and how Beverly Allett had been present for every single event. They also showed how the suspicious incidents discontinued after Beverly was relieved from her duties. Evidence was also detailed regarding the high levels of insulin and potassium readings in her victims. Photographs of the puncture holes were exhibited underneath the victim's armpits. She was also accused of cutting off her victim's oxygen either by smothering or tampering with machines. Professor Roy Meadow, a pediatric expert, detailed Munchausen syndrome and Munchausen syndrome by proxy and also detailed how it played a role in Beverly Allett's childhood. He explained to the jury how Beverly Allett exhibited signs of both syndromes and how it played a role in her post-arrest behavior in her false claims of suffering from various injuries and illnesses which ultimately caused the severe delay in the start of this trial. Professor Roy Meadow explained to the jury in his testimony that it was in his opinion that Beverly Allett would never be cured of her syndromes. Because of this, she would always, potentially, be a danger to anyone she ever came into contact with for the rest of her life. Yikes. Yikes indeed. After a trial that lasted two months, of those two months, only 16 days 
attended by Beverly Allett due to her quote-unquote illnesses. She was convicted and sentenced to prison on May 23, 1993. Finally. Finally. Wow. So how long was her sentence? So her sentence was 13 life sentences. Woo! One for each victim. She was sentenced for murder and attempted murder. It was the harshest sentence ever given to a female, but according to Justice Latham, it was commensurate with the horrific suffering of her victims, the victims' families, and the ignominy she had brought on the profession of nursing as a whole. Her impact on the Grantham and Kestevan Hospital was so severe that the children's ward was shut down altogether. Rather than going to prison, Beverly Allett was incarcerated at Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottingham, a high-security facility housing mainly individuals detained under the Mental Health Act. As an inmate at Rampton, she began her attention-seeking behavior again. So the story's not over. <laughs> no, not over. It's so, not over. So now what's she doing? So she's doing things like ingesting ground glass, pouring boiling water on her hand, and as of today, she has admitted to three of the murders of which she was charged, as well as six of the assaults. The appalling nature of her crimes has placed her on the home office list of criminals who will never be eligible for parole. She remains in Rampton Secure Hospital at Nottingham as of today, where she will remain secured for the remainder of her life. So, is that it? <laughs> That's it. I thought for sure you were going to keep going. Like, there was going to be like a whole other, like, part of, part two. No, she's in surprisingly, I was able to wrap up all of her heinous crimes in one episode and there's a lot that's a lot of uh serious things even though four only died four four children that is i mean there were a lot of victims and that's some serious stuff yeah i i don't even have a words you're speechless yeah <laughs> uh, so with taking into consideration all of those those facts i mean all of that <clears throat> that's a lot of stuff to comprehend, right? That's a whole lot of crazy. That's a whole lot of crazy for sure. So considering all of that, do you have any thoughts or questions, guesses as to whether or not the crime is made up or the crimes, I should say, in this case? Do you have any guesses as to whether that is a true crime or unbelievable? Well, I have absolutely no doubt that there are psychos in the world who are capable of doing things like that. Women and men. Very true, yes. So with that, I mean, any any other thoughts? Anything that seem a little far-fetched? Is there anything in there of those crimes that seem unbelievable or made up or too good? or Not too good, but too <laughs> far-fetched to be true? More so just going with like a gut feeling here because I... I fully believe all of this, all this whole story absolutely could happen. Very believable. But my gut feeling today is leaning towards this one being false. And why do you say false? I'm trusting my gut, husband. I'm curious though, like, I, I, I want more of an explanation as to just you're trusting your gut feeling. I don't know. I mean, but my explanations could probably don't make sense. I mean, there were times where I just questioned... I don't know, some random small lack of detail here and there. And then out of all the children in which fell victim to Beverly Allett's crimes, 
are there any specific children that seem, you know, where the details didn't add up or see, I think probably a good chunk of it was, I just, I seriously think that she would have been caught a long time ago. Like they're just, they were dropping like flies. There was, you know, the, it was all within 59 days, literally two months. I just, I, I believe their staffing would have caught onto that a little bit sooner than what it did. Now, in your opinion, because you're you're saying this is an unbelievable crime, you're you're saying this is a false crime, and you're in your mind in a real world. What's a sufficient amount of time in your head to catch crimes such as these in a civilized hospital? Well, it's different because like this is take this is you know a couple decades back. I don't know exactly how on top of things people were. I mean, they were short-staffed, like crazy short-staffed, right. which that seems you know, unbelievable to me nowadays. Like I can imagine hospitals being that short staffed. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. You don't know the details of like, I mean, this takes place in the United Kingdom. So is this, you know, we don't know that we don't live there, so we can't know. Exactly. So I don't know how on top of things they were at that time. But, but I mean, again, this is all just personal. I just would like to give staffing and people the benefit of the doubt at that time that they could somebody could had to have caught on what do you think of beverly allett do you think she seems too insane within her own mind to be a real person i think she seems a little too insane to have gotten that far in her career so are you sticking with unbelievable absolutely yeah let's find out so you said unbelievable right that is correct. That was true. No, it wasn't. It was completely true. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. No, it was not. Completely true. That is a real person who did all of those things. You're seriously going to let me be wrong the third time in a row? <laughs> there is a documentary and everything about <gasps> ah! this psycho, and she is still in that secured hospital today. So that person exists in this world, scarily enough. And there's more like her, I'm sure. Definitely. They may not have been caught by now, but there are people like that in this world. Scary enough. Uh, I don't doubt that. I can. This is really embarrassing. You guys, this is so embarrassing. Please tell me I'm not the only one who is zero for three at this game. Well, so far that we know of, you are the only one who is zero for three. I'm done. You just have a a positive outlook on the world, which is not a bad thing. We could. That's kind of you to think of it that way. Now, even, I mean, you just got hired as a dispatcher, so your view of the world is going to change exponentially as you progress throughout your career. So it'll be interesting as we progress through this podcast to see how much more, how much more accepting of insane people you get as you learn more throughout your career as a 911 dispatcher. I mean, there was never no doubt. I mean, I know there's crazy people. I mean, I'm the biggest murder story fan. True, but you're just not doing so hot on this. Oh, God. I just, I'm terrible at this. I'll be curious. Those listening, if if you are also zero for three, comment on one of our pictures on Instagram or send us a message to let Adrienne know she is not the only one. Please let me, please give me comments. Tell me I'm not as pathetic as I feel. (laughs) Good Lord. (laughs) You're just a virgin to the psycho world out there. Not a bad thing. One day you'll get one right. (laughs) So that's going to conclude episode three of Unbelievably True Crimes.
We truly appreciate your support and listenership, and we hope to continue to grow in our ability to continue to push out these these episodes for you. Please review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It's extremely helpful and appreciated as it drives us up the iTunes charts and gets our show out there to more people. It takes a significant amount of time to research and sometimes completely make up these crimes, and it means a lot to me if you take three minutes out of your time to give us five stars and review us. You can also just rate us and click submit, or if you're feeling extra generous, you can write a review, which I, we, would greatly appreciate. Again, Apple Podcasts on your iPhone or on your iTunes desktop app. Just search Unbelievably True Crimes, click the five stars, and write a review. In the very least, five stars. Submit. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbelievably True Crimes to receive regular updates as well. If you've got any suggestions or feedback or... Hints for me. Yeah. Please help me, guys. Hints for Adri or just, hey, I'm also zero for three. Send us an Instagram message or email into unbelievablytruecrimes at gmail.com. Tune in for episode four, which we will release next Monday. And tune in every Monday for more incredible, frustrating case studies. This has been Unbelievably True Crimes. I'm Ty. And I'm Adri. Thank you for listening, and we'll be with you soon. And in the meantime, trust Trust nobody. nobody, especially Tyler. Thank you for listening to another case of Unbelievably True Crimes with Ty and Adri. We appreciate your attentiveness and good judgment throughout the hearing. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Also, follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Unbelievably True Crimes. Until next time, court is adjourned. Thank you and good night. I've already been interviewed at great length by police in relation to various allegations made. I have been under great pressure because of the vast amount of media attention on me. And in this case, I do not therefore wish to answer any more questions. Kidding. The poor cramped and even some harm has been done to it. And you are the prime suspect at the moment. Everything points at you. You I have nothing to say. What can I do to you say I didn't? I've told you I didn't do it. And I wouldn't dream of doing it to anybody. God, why a patient if I hated somebody that much?